You're listening to sermons from Gospel Community Church in Eugene, Oregon. For more information about our church, please visit our website at gccugene.org. The late minister, Robert Farrar Capone, said the Reformation was a time when people went blind, staggering drunk because they had discovered in the dusty basement of late medievalism a whole cellar full of 1,500-year-old, 200-proof grace, bottle after bottle of pure, desolate scripture that would convince anyone that God saves us single-handedly. The Bible is a message of God's grace from beginning to end, and the Epistle of Romans is one of those letters that makes the gospel of grace explicitly clear. Drinking 200-proof alcohol would wreck you and could even kill you, Drinking from the fountain of grace we read about in Romans will do the same thing. The 200-proof, pure, free, unfiltered gospel of grace that takes you right where you are will put our life of sin and rebellion to death while bringing forth a new man, unbound, unchained, to live a truly free and transformed life under a perfect king. Martin Luther said, Romans is the chief part of the New Testament and the purest gospel. He said that every Christian should not only know it word for word, by heart, but also that they should occupy themselves with it every day as the bread of the soul. John Calvin stated about Romans, if we understand this epistle, we have a passage open to us to the understanding of the whole of scripture. Taste and experience the power of God for salvation for all who believe, the 200 proof strength of the gospel in Romans. Good morning. It's good to see you guys this morning. My name is Rick, and I am, by God's grace, the lead pastor of Gospel Community Church, and have been in this role since 2015 when we planted here. And so I'm thankful to be here this morning. I'm thankful to be with you guys. A couple things real quick that you should know about the the man that stands in the pulpit is first and foremost, the man that stands in the pulpit or behind the pulpit should not be defined by being in the pulpit. He should be defined by being a child of God that gets to preach and teach God's word. And I say that to say this morning, Uh, I would first ask that you guys pray for me because the first thing, as I said, is the man behind the pulpit needs grace, not less grace, but understands he needs more grace and should understand that more than anyone else in the room. Secondly, the man behind the pulpit is fully human. And so that's something that we should understand as well. Jesus was fully human and fully God. I'm just fully human, which means this. I had one of those awful dreams last night and it might sound bizarre, but it's just weighing heavy on me. And it was related to one of my children's death. And so like this whole morning, I've been like shaky because of that. So if you guys could pray for me in that, I don't know a whole theory and study on dreams. I've listened to a little bit. It's confusing. Somehow believe that somehow it's related to the enemy, the subconscious, all that stuff working together, get it. But I do know this, it was vivid and real and weighed heavy on me. So pray for me as I pray for you guys and we'll dive in this morning. So father, thank you. Thank you that you're a good God. Thank you that you're in control of all of life. And thank you that in your goodness, you sent your son, fully human, fully God, to live the life that was fully human, a life of obedience, a life of purity, a life of holiness, a life of righteousness, and a life being fully secure in your love for him. And Jesus, you stood in our place at the end of your life, the place that we deserve because of our rebellion against the holy God, and we praise you for that. We thank you that through faith in you, your works, your life, your obedience is transferred to us. We pray this morning that you administer to us. We know there's those in the room right now that are hurting, that are grieving, that are going through the difficulties of life. 
recognizing the, the human process of pain and suffering. But we also know there's those in the room right now that are celebrating and rejoicing the other side of humanity that we have a good God who gives us common grace, who gives us his divine grace, and we praise you for that too. Father, we pray uh, for the babies in our church, and specifically this morning, we celebrate and give you praise for Truett Clausen and his arrival, and we pray for Sarah and Truett to be strong and healthy. Father, we pray for Henry's continued healing and restoration. Father, we pray for Jess and for her treatment. Father, we pray for all of our members and all those that call GCC home, that our hearts would be secure in your son. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Yeah, as a point of celebration, Jake and Sarah Clausen welcome their third child into the world this morning. His name is Truett Clausen. So Truett has arrived. So yeah. Yeah, so we're pumped about that. If you guys would, turn with me to Romans, and we're going to dive in. Continuing our series this morning. The main point this morning is going to be the repentant and unrepentant. The repentant and unrepentant. A, a, a sub-point could be the righteous repent and remember. So we're going to be looking at the repentant and unrepentant, and what we're going to see is that the righteous repent and remember. So we're going to see repentance is, is a very good thing. In fact, Martin Luther who started the Protestant Reformation, nailed his 95 Thesis. And the very first thesis that he nailed to the door, Muttenberg, was this, that all of the Christian life is to be lived out in repentance. It's not we repent from some grave sin, some mortal sin, and then every now and then a venial sin. It's all of our life is to be lived out in repentance and then faith turning from sin, turning to Christ. And so we're going to look at that this morning. The righteous remember. But first, from the youngest of age, we learn how to hide, and we get really good at it. You can watch this as a parent if you have kids. As soon as your kids mess up, as soon as they sin, as soon as they do anything, hiding becomes very natural. They'll hide their face. They will hide their body. They will run and hide. They will go to a closet. They will do something There's something in us intrinsically that knows whenever we've done something wrong that what we should do is run and hide. And the reality is, is that what we're trying to do is find a place of safety and security because we feel vulnerable, because we feel exposed. It reminds me of the old hymn, Everlasting Arms. The lyrics in that say that we're leaning on the everlasting arms, safe and secure from all alarms. We're looking for safety. We're looking for security. That's why we hide. We don't change much whenever we get older. We just change our tactics. We still hide, but we hide behind things. We hide behind what we would call fig leaves as Christian, kind of like Adam and Eve did in the garden. They sinned and rebelled against God, and they needed to hide. So they hid, and they made themselves fig leaves. We hide behind success. We hide behind our careers. We hide behind our parenting. We hide behind many things. I shared this story years ago, but we hide behind ridiculous things that we do as well. I remember, uh, for, for those of you guys that were here to, to hear this years ago, I was at Costco once, and I parked in a handicapped parking spot, and I, and I, I didn't know it, truthfully. There's, there's things where I did know, and I think I professed that I didn't know at the time that I really did know, but this was one of those that I did not know. But I knew it as soon as I looked at a gentleman who was elderly, and, and or he was elderly, and elderly. <laughs> That's PC. I look, I see this gentleman's car, he's with his wife, he's elderly. Instantly, I felt shame because I looked and saw that he was waiting on this handicapped parking spot. And so 
I instantly developed a limp and I limped to my car. I limped to put my, I did, I limped to put my shopping cart away and then I limped back to the car, which is, and my wife goes, you're ridiculous. And I'm like, but, but the reality is, and that is ridiculous, but the reality is, is that I felt stupid and, and I was like, a limp is something I could hide behind right now to at least justify my stupidity. And so it's what I did and it's the way that I tried to hide it and cover up my mistakes instead of just going and knocking on his door and being like, I'm sorry, I'm an idiot. I should have looked and seen and I didn't. So I covered. We just get real tactful in how we do this, the older that we get, but, but, but we still do it. And so I want us to look at that this morning and even ask ourselves this question from the beginning. What are you hiding in? What is your security? What is your safety? What is your comfort? What are some of your fig leaves? What are those things that you're putting forward so that maybe others will look at that instead of looking on what's inside? And also I'd ask this, do you live a life of repentance? Or are you someone who says, I don't know what I would repent from because I don't really know what I do wrong. I'm generally a good person. I kind of want to blow up the categories this morning of good and bad and instead look at repentant and unrepentant because I believe it's more helpful. So Romans 2 verse 1. When we get to verse 4, I'm going to have you guys read it out loud with me, okay? Verse 4, stay tuned, read it out loud with me. Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself, because you, the judge, practice the very same things. We know that the judgment of God rightly falls on those who practice such things. Do you suppose, O man, you who judge those who practice such things and yet do them yourself, that you will escape the judgment of God? Read with me. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day of wrath, when God's righteous judgment will be revealed, he will render to each one according to his works. To those who by patience and well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. There will be tribulation and distress for every human being who does evil, the Jew first and also the Greek. But glory and honor and peace for everyone who does good, the Jew first and also the Greek. For God shows no partiality. So first, we left off last week with the verses right above this. We can even go back and read it. And see, uh, starting at the uh, end of 29, it says, They are full of envy and murder and strife, deceit, maliciousness. They are gossip, slanders, haters of God, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, disobedient to parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, ruthless. There's this whole list. And there's this whole list there that would lead people to go, My goodness, thank God I'm not like any of those things. And so in a lot of ways, we can look at chapter 1 and say, That was really addressing someone who is licentious or someone who we would call maybe more like a younger brother in the prodigal son story. So let me explain what I mean by licentiousness and what I mean by that. Licentiousness is someone who says, I don't want to obey rules. I will not be held down by any rules. So that's what licentious means. In the story of the prodigal son, there's, there's two brothers. There's the one uh, younger brother who's more licentious and says, I don't want to obey the father's rules. I'm going to go and live my own life and squander my father's wealth. We're introduced to another brother. He's legalistic. Legalistic meaning that he believes that by keeping the rules, he is a good person, that he's right with his uh, father. In that case, we can look at chapter one and someone say, okay, 
it's clear these are the people that are more licentious, the rule breakers. And then we, like the story of the tax collector, can look at those people and go, I thank God that I'm not anything like any of those people. And then in the story of the tax collector, the tax collector beats his chest before God and cries out to God to have mercy on him, a sinner. In the same way, we know here that Paul is addressing Jewish people because it says, oh man, which was a Jewish phrase throughout antiquity to address Jewish people. So Paul is now addressing the Jewish people. And what he's essentially saying is, since you judge and you pass judgment on one another, know that you too, through your own conscience of even judging people, are guilty. But also he's saying that you do the very things that you judge other people for doing. How do we make sense of that? Well, we understand through Jesus' Sermon on the Mount that same people would have said the same thing. Man, I'm thankful I'm not doing any of those things. I haven't committed adultery. I haven't murdered. But then Jesus dives into the heart level and says, no, 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 you have. You see, have you ever been angry with your brother? People say yes. And Jesus says, that's murder. Have you ever looked at a woman with lustful intent? And Jesus would say, that's adultery. And now we recognize that every person is a lawbreaker that no one measures up to that sort of standard. So what Jesus is do, or what Paul is doing is he's addressing those that tend to be self-righteous, which means that you are righteous in and of yourself through the way that you live your life. And so what you lay claim to in life is that I'm a righteous person because of how I live my life. And Paul's addressing that and saying, no. Sometimes we can think of self-righteous people as only the people that sit in the chairs on a Sunday morning. These are the people who trust and they're listening to K-Love radio and only watching Kirk Cameron films and only watching PG movies and whatever. But it's also just as self-righteous in the Pacific Northwest to tell people, if you're not recycling, if you're not living this way, if you're not caring for these people, if you're not doing those things, that is a rule of religion that we lord over people, and we see it in our culture in the Pacific Northwest. So it's not just Bible thumpers in the South that tell you don't drink, uh, drink, chew, smoke, or hang out with those that do. It's actually in the Pacific Northwest, we can see how religious and self-righteous people are because of the way that they tell you to live and then want to throw stones if you're not living up to that. That's religion, and it's self-righteous, and it produces a lack of mercy. And here's the thing. If you are someone who is trusting in your own goodness, your own life, your own morality, you are in a dangerous position. Just like Paul saying, the Jewish people, you can't trust in your heritage. You can't say, well, I'm Christian because my grandparents were Christian or my great-grandparents were Christians or I know Christians or I kind of do some good things. That is works-based righteousness. How do you know if you're someone who is more religious? I have a list. Some of these were put together by a pastor, a preacher who has passed away. His name is Tim Keller. And then some of these I added uh, myself. So let's just work through these and see if maybe you are someone who tends to be a little bit more legalistic, a little bit more self-righteous. Do you feel that you are a hopeless sinner whom God would have a perfect right to cast off this minute because of the state of your inner life and heart? That was number one. Number two, do you rise up in defense when someone brings a challenge or correction to you? In other words, does your inner lawyer rise up to defend you? Number three, when you consider those outside your church and how they lived, you shake your head and judge them in your heart. Do you think, or do you think, my nature is just like theirs, it just shows itself differently? Number four, are you shocked by the sin in people's lives and even shocked by your own sin 
and it shows up through comments like, I can't believe I did that, or how could I do something like that? Number five, how often do you confess your sin to others around you? Number six, do others around you feel safe confessing to you? You could even ask five of your friends, and I know this one can be a little subjective, but just ask them and say, am I someone that you can bring your brokenness to and feel safe? Number seven, here's a big one. You find yourself easily annoyed and frustrated by other people's sins. I remember this would drive me crazy that my dad and grandpa would always grunt and shake their heads at everyone. I'm like, stop. And I'm like, yeah. You find yourself easily annoyed at other people's sins. In other ways, you have 20-20 vision to look at other people's sins and 2,600 when it comes to your own. Number eight, you spend more time talking about the sin of others more than you actually talk about your own. All of these could be signs and symptoms that you are someone who is self-righteous, someone who, as Paul is addressing here, judge others because you ultimately are judging others because it makes you feel good to talk about others and you think that you're a good person. Think about this. A repentant murderer goes to heaven, but an unrepentant person who starts foundations for charities goes to hell. A repentant prostitute goes to heaven, but an unrepentant virgin goes to hell. A repentant person who cheated on their wife goes to heaven, but an unrepentant man who never had an affair goes to hell. Why? Because it's not about good and bad. The reality is, we'll get in this in chapter three, no one is good, no, not one. It is about a life of repentance or unrepentance. That's what Paul is addressing. And if it bothers you to think about that, that's probably also a sign and a symptom of you trusting in your own righteousness. I like what Dane Ortland says, pastor and commentator. He says, all our bad does not make us harder to save, and all of our good does not make us easier to save. What saves us is Christ, and therefore all we contribute is honesty, admitting we are sinners and casting ourselves on him. Did you catch that? All of our bad doesn't make us harder to save, All of our good doesn't make us easier to save because it's not about those categories. It's about a life who can recognize their need for a savior and repent. Anything that you're hiding behind, anything that you're attempting to cover yourself up in will be consumed in the presence of a holy God because he is an all-consuming fire unless you are clothed in his holiness and only Christ has that clothing and covering to give you and put on you. Anything else is your own merit, your own works that you cover yourself with. It'll be consumed. The only thing that cannot be consumed in God's presence through a holy God is God's own holiness. That's where our trust needs to be. So first Paul uh, addresses those people. He's even saying here in verse 4, Or do you presume on the riches and kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? In other words, do you not look at God's kindness and, 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 and his goodness, and go, wow, I don't want to rebel. I want to live obediently. Or are you someone that looks at that and goes, now I can just live however my, uh, I want. And, and he addresses this more in this next section, section where I would say he's addressing more of the licentious rule breaker. Look here, verse 6. He will render to each one according to his work. So those who, by patience and well-doing, seek for glory and honor, and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. So now, are you someone who's like, yeah, I can't stand the 
Rick, thank you. Can't stand legalistic people. Don't like the self-righteous. They bug me. Not a rule follower. In fact, my number one rule is that there are no rules, which is still a rule, and it's a logical fallacy because now it's a contradiction. So if you're someone who lives by, I'm never going to be held down by rules, you're enslaved to your own rule-breaking desires, which is also something that needs to be repented of. Because if you look at God's grace and say, I want to keep having sex outside of marriage, if you look at God's grace and say, I want to keep getting drunk, if you look at God's grace and say, I want to keep living a lifestyle that is contrary to his word in any sort of way, I would say that you don't understand God's grace. Instead, what you understand is that maybe what I can do is just tell God that he deserves me grace or deserves to give me grace because I'm actually still a pretty good person because I compare myself horizontally to those around me. And I would say that's dangerous. It's dangerous to trust in yourself for righteousness and be legalistic and believe that somehow you're making yourself right before a holy God, but it's also dangerous to say, I'm going to continue to live my life however I want, treating people however I want, because I'm not going to be tied down by rules. That's like that's akin to someone going up to the, uh, the edge of a cliff and saying, you know what? I'm sick of gravity holding me down. I'm launching. It makes no sense. But to look at God's law and say the same thing, I'm not going to let that tie me down, is a misunderstanding of how good God's law is. And that it's actually meant to give you freedom and the fullness of life. But it's not a means to manipulate God to love and accept you. We understand God's law calls us how to live, but it also shows us our failure to live in the way that God calls us to live. Both need to repent. If you're someone who is a rule follower, repent. If you're someone who is a rule breaker, repent. The Christian life is marked by repentance. Are you someone who is repentant or unrepentant? Paul says here that it's offered to the Jew first and also to the Gentile that God shows no partiality. It's not going to be about pedigree. It's not going to be about your life. It's, it, it's not going to be about your works. But at the same time, if you profess Christ and then live inconsistent to that, let it be a reality check for you. Because what Paul is also doing is he's actually quoting from Psalm 62 here when it says, he will render to each one according to his works. That's a psalm by King David. And in it, King David says this in Psalm 62.4. He says, they only plan, and he's talking about, listen, they only plan to thrust him down from his high position. They take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. Who's David addressing? There's those who profess by their mouth that they have faith and trust in God, but they live contrary to that. Also, it says this in Psalm 62.9, those of low estate are but a breath. Listen to this. Those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. What does this mean? I got this from Brad, our executive pastor, we got it from someone else. There are two roads in life that lead to hell. There's the high road where you follow all the rules, but trust in that. And there's the low road where you reject all of God's law and follow that. Both lead to the same path, eternity and hell. Psalm 62.12 also says this, and this is where we get it from. And that... To you, O Lord, belongs steadfast love, for you will render to a man according to his work. We should read this like we should read Ephesians 2. And in in Ephesians 2, Paul unpacks there that we're saved by grace apart from anything that we do so that no man can boast. But we were also saved to live and walk 
in a manner that is consistent with our saving and to do good works. I like what John Calvin says, God doesn't need your good works, but your neighbor does. We're called to live in such a way to where we profess Christ with our mouth and say our hearts have desire to be obedient, not so we can manipulate God to love us, but because we can't ever get get him to change his mind to stop loving us. So let me say this. What's the gospel and how does it speak to it? First, Ian read a passage, repent and believe the gospel. Did you know God's first act of kindness to us is to allow us to see that we actually need a savior and need to repent? That's God's kindness. Because if he doesn't first show you that you need a savior and that you need to repent, you'll never think that you need saving. You'll just go through life thinking, I'm a pretty good person. Pretty awesome. God would be pretty lucky to have me on his team. Have you met me? The first thing that God in his grace and in his kindness and his mercy shows you is you have miserably fallen from living up to God's holy and righteous standard. You need to be saved. The next thing that he shows us is that he alone has provided the Savior in the way. Do you know what Jesus Christ did? What Christ did and what the gospel is, it's called the good news. Because Christ didn't just make us fireproof, he made us failure-proof. And what I mean by that is that when Christ lived his life, he lived a life of good works. The only person that lived a life of completely good works is Christ. But at the end of his life, he died being punished as a rule breaker, as someone who's not a rule follower, as someone who disobeyed and threw aside God's law. But we know that's not true. Why did he die that way? So that we could receive his payment, so that his works would be rendered to us. When we place our trust and faith in Jesus Christ, the justification that we receive as Christians means that Jesus' works are legally declared that they belong to us and that our sin legally is declared to belong to him, and that will never change. We are rendered the works of Christ. We are rendered the holiness of God. We become fireproof because now we are given the holiness of God. It is our clothing. It is our covering. We are covered in the purity and the righteousness of Jesus Christ, but we're also failure-proof because we're not defined by our actions and our failures or our successes. We are defined by the works and the life of Christ that has been made legally ours through faith in Christ. He rose from the grave victorious so that we too are seen as victors over our sin. That's how God sees us, as though we've been victorious over every sin in our life. That belongs to us. It's ours. And that's where we should hide as Christians. Because when we hide there, then we don't have to put on a front. We don't have to limp at Costco. We don't have to do weird stuff. We don't have to run and hide our faces in shame. Why? Because we have the majesty, the beauty, the glory, and the radiance of Christ covering us. And it frees us. I like this. Look at verse 4. Or do you presume on the riches of his kindness? Look at these verses that talk about riches. Ephesians 1.7, in him, in Christ, we have redemption. That means that we've been purchased through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Ephesians 1.18, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Ephesians 2.7, so that in the coming ages that he might show, look at this, the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. 
If you go back to Ephesians 2.4, he says, but God, do you want to know what God is rich in? God is being rich in mercy, compassion, because of the great love which with, with which he loved us. Even when we were dead in our tr- trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. In God's immeasurable grace is not tethered to anything you do. It's tethered to what Christ did for you. And it's immeasurable. Immeasurable. You can't calculate it. No one would sit underneath Niagara Falls and go, man, I wonder if there's going to be any water that hits me. You, you, you would not go near it because you'd be consumed by it. It's around 700,000 gallons of second that come over Niagara Falls. It could crush you. But it's measurable. What is immeasurable is God's grace for you that are in Christ Jesus. In other words, you have an infinite bank account of God's grace, of his mercy, and his forgiveness that is poured out on your account constantly. It's that kindness that leads you to repentance. Let me read the story. Lisa loved her husband and found herself wooed by another man at work who, who flirted with her. Over time, she longed for his behavior and the attention that he gave her. This finally resulted in an affair that went on for roughly six months. She would come home late from work to find her children tucked in and a meal left on the table for her. Night after night, her husband would repeat this act of preparing a meal and would write a love note. Something happened that Lisa didn't expect. She got pregnant. She panicked, but the man she was having the affair with quit talking to her the day he found out and made it clear he wanted nothing to do with her or the baby. What would she do? She told her husband they needed to talk that evening. Her husband met her with dinner and on the present when she came, or on the table when she came in, there were three presents along with flowers. She said, I, I can't open these before we talk. And he said, I won't open these, or I won't talk until you open these. She opened the first gift and found a white bedtime robe that she didn't understand. The next gift she opened was a maternity outfit with a note that said, I found the pregnancy test, and I know I'm not the father. She started bawling and opened the final gift, which was an outfit for the baby with another note that said, but I'm prepared to be the father if you will allow me. Speechless and feeling overwhelmed with shame, her husband took her and covered her in the white robe and gently whispered, you are washed pure and covered in Christ's beauty. His friends asked him, how could you ever do something like this? And won't the baby remind you of the affair? He replied, our child reminds me every day that I too was a fatherless orphan before God saved me and brought me into his family. If anything, our child reminds me of my own need for a savior and the wonderful one God provided me in Christ Jesus. If we understand God's grace, this is but a fraction. We understand his pursuit over us in the midst of our sin and rebellion. This is but a sliver. God loves us, continues to pour his grace out on us, continues to see us as though we're righteous and holy and blameless. And it's that kindness that God has for us that leads the Christian to say, I'm going to repent. So what is repentance? Let me briefly unpack it. It is said that it is turning from our sin and turning to Christ to remember what he's done. You need to hear this. Repentance and penance are not the same thing. One of the most helpful things I ever heard a pastor say is, as a child of God, you don't go to your father to receive forgiveness. As a child of God, you go to a child who's already been forgiven. When you repent from sin, you're agreeing that you need the forgiveness that God has already supplied you in Christ. When you repent, you're agreeing and admitting that you need grace and you need the righteousness that Christ has already given to you. When you repent, you're admitting to him that I need the saving that you have already supplied and given me. 
It's not, God, look at what I've done. I hate myself. I hate, I haven't smiled in an hour. I, I'm, I'm, I'm self-loathing. I'm, I'm doing asceticism. I'm beating myself. I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be happy. That's trusting your own punishment, not in Christ's punishment for you. Repentance is turning from sin, remembering God's kindness, and turning to look at Christ, not, not inward but outward, and say, I have the fullness of his love and affection. True repentance is turning from sin and turning to Christ. Here's the beautiful thing for a church family. It's not a lonely project. In other words, it should look like this. If there was a one-way street and, and the street was moving this way and I'm walking this way, as soon as I realize I'm going the wrong way on the one-way street, I would turn and I would go this way. As soon as I notice that there's other people also doing the same thing, it's my job as a Christian to lovingly grab them and turn them and move them in the same direction, knowing that we do that for one another and help one another to turn from our sin and turn to Christ. That's the most loving thing we can do. So moving forward, let me end with this. I'll call the worship team out now. For some of you, it's time to repent. It's time for you to repent from your self-righteousness, and it's time for you to repent from the lifestyle that you're living. The next step is this, confession. Someone who is truly hidden in Christ, someone who truly understands the safety and security that they have in Christ, lives a life of confession. This isn't like a a one-time thing. This is an ongoing thing that Christians do. We confess our sin, our sin of self-righteousness, our sin of rebellion. We confess that to one another. That is a good sign that the moment you come clean and ready to confess, you're actually trusting in Christ covering you, not in the image that you want to put forth for others to see. Confess. Start today. Lastly, it talks, the text talks about those who are just self-seeking. Let me encourage you with this. Week after week, we throw out that we are a church family who's in need of people to serve, of people to be consistent, of people to be invested. Let me challenge you with this. Don't wait for next week. And if you're like, oh, man, I don't like that he's saying that. Why? Because I want to challenge you to start living a life selflessly, a life repenting from selfish living to selfless living of serving one another. The church does not exist to meet every one of your needs. The church exists for us to love and serve one another. How does your life reflect that? Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of your kindness. Let it lead to repentance in our life. In Jesus' name, amen.